From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Francis Rose. The Defense Department's on target to reaward the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract by the end of this month. Pentagon Chief Information Officer Dana Deasy says the department will make the new award, quote, barring any last-minute unforeseen additional issues that are raised. FCW reports a judge's stay for the department to reconsider parts of the contract expires August 17th. The final versions of three documents on the third iteration of the trusted Internet connection policy are out from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. CISA got almost 500 public comments on the TIC3 guidebook, the Security Capabilities Catalog, and Reference Architecture. FedScoop reports the final versions of four other TIC3.0 documents will come out later this summer. The IT Acquisition University is up and running at the General Services Administration. The agency is housing a series of videos for the university at the Acquisition Gateway. The videos include training on specific contracts like VETS II and Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions and broader topics like supply chain risk management and identity management. The Army's new COVID-19 airway management isolation chamber will use a negative pressure vacuum to cut the spread of the coronavirus through the air. The device could help doctors uh, keep doctors safe from the virus. It's the first machine of its kind to get approval from the Food and Drug Administration. Colonel Todd Rasmussen, MD, U.S. Air Force, is a professor of surgery and associate dean for research at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Scientists. Uh, Colonel, doctor, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the program. How did this suit come about, How this device come about? Maybe I'm not calling it uh, correctly a suit. How did this come about and, and, and how are you developing it? Well, I think the... Uh like many of the, the uh, advances that the military has made, military medicine has made uh, during the wars, uh, this device, uh, the COVID uh, airway management isolation chamber or system uh, was made by practical observations uh, by anesthesia providers, uh, uh, nurses, technicians in the operating rooms uh, uh, and in the intensive care units of the military health system. And um, the device is in a way very practical covers the head and the face of a patient uh, as, as that patient is uh, being intubated uh, and uh, protects then uh, those providers who are, um, are, are rendering that care. Uh, it's very practical uh, and it's being iterated uh, sort of in rapid cycle in real time. How do you go about looking at situations like we're finding with COVID-19 and figuring out ways to innovate? Or is it just a matter of what you said? Is it as simple as people on the ground observing what's going on and figuring out ways to possibly mitigate those risks? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the best uh, research questions, the best innovation projects, we say stem from the bedside of the patient, uh, whether the bedside's in the operating room, the intensive care units uh, here in the US or around the world, uh, when we see uh, processes that we think we can make better, either with a method or a new technology, a device, sometimes a drug uh, or biologic, that's where the innovation starts. That's sort of the, the nidus for the innovation. And then, you know, our job is to facilitate those ideas uh, in the military health system, uh, both here at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Walter Reed. Um, and there's a lot of examples of 
of those sparks that occur in our innovative providers who say, hey, there's a better way to do this. Uh, how about we, in this case, build a chamber to protect ourselves uh, and even patients as we intubate them. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the devices are often put into, in this case, a prototype. The prototype is evolved or iterated over time, uh, made better uh, by observations, works with work within a team, sometimes engineers. Uh, and then eventually we work with our FDA partners, you know, our, our partners in the federal government to really bring this uh, to fruition. Strikes me though that when you say iterated over time, in a challenge like we're up against with COVID-19, you don't have a lot of time. So I imagine that these, these time windows are fairly truncated. Is that a fair observation? It's a great uh, observation, very fair. Uh, we use the term rapid cycle innovation sometimes, and, and certainly uh, we experienced that in, in the military health system during the wars, the urgencies of, of severe injury. For example, troops dying on the battlefield or severely injured did not give us a lot of time to try to innovate and improve survival and recovery. Similarly, the COVID or SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, COVID, uh, has an urgency to it that doesn't uh, give us a lot of time for some of the traditional uh, research and development pathways that we, we otherwise would like to take. And in those cases, it's real important that we gather real-time data. Sometimes we'll refer to it as real-world data which is almost, uh, you know, after every day, observations that are made with the use of these approaches is analyzed, we talk about it, and, and then we, I use the word iterate, meaning we, we try to improve for the next day until better data can become available. Uh, so the urgency doesn't leave us a whole lot of time. That's, that's a, a fair observation. Doctor, before we went on the air, we talked a little bit about, uh, you, you mentioned the fact that you believe that military, the military medical community has an advantage in dealing with something like COVID. Is that the advantage that you're used to working under uh, the need for speed? I think the need for speed and then capacity. I think um, what COVID has shown is that the civilian healthcare system, as effective uh, as it is, operates on a very thin margin. And when uh, surges like this come, whether it's in uh, mass casualty events from uh, acts of uh, spontaneous or acts of violence or a pandemic, uh, often the civilian healthcare system doesn't have extra capacity. And I think it's it's not only the military's military medicine stance and our readiness to respond to urgent matters, but it's also that we have a significant capacity, both in personnel, sometimes space. In this case, we have capacity to innovate. And I think those two or three factors uh, make military medicine, uh, you know, a real national I think asset that sometimes can be overlooked outside of warfare. You know, I think it was very prominent, military medicine was during the wars, but this is a great example of how uh, military medicine has now turned its capacity to innovate, capacity to care uh, and, and, and such to a non-wartime and really mostly homeland uh, security effort, if you will. Dr. Colonel, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time, sir. We appreciate your interest and uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Have a great day. Up next, seizing the telework opportunity of federal agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Congress investigates the private sector's best practices for telework. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. Democratic members of the House and Senate are pressuring the Trump administration to keep telework first policies in place. Those members say federal workers should have broader telework options even after COVID. Sean Morris is chief operating officer of government and public services at Deloitte. He testified about modernizing telework before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Sean, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. The, one of the things that I thought you said that was most useful to people making these decisions in government was this. You testified organizations that attempt to just return to the office are missing the opportunity to take advantage of the positive changes a new normal can offer. What are those positive changes that government agencies can potentially leverage, Sean? Absolutely. And one of the things that I think, just uh, taking one step back, that's really important here is the concept of rethinking orthodoxies. And once you start to think re rethinking orthodoxies about where you're working, how you're working, and what you're working with, you can start to see some potential positives in a collaborative manner. Um, an example of that is rethinking where you work. Um, we're all very much focused on working from home during this pandemic. Um, the question is, how much of that can we continue to do in the future? And what are the benefits uh, and the breaking of orthodoxies that we can see as a result of that? Well, and what I think is, is interesting is that the, you ask some rhetorical questions through your testimony that I think even go beyond where can we do the work. The questions that seem to me the, that you posed that the committee should think about is where should we do the work? And you testified about four different places that you're thinking about where, this, where work can happen in the future. Tell me about those four areas. Yeah, we're thinking about four quadrants. So there is the traditional office space that we're all very, very familiar with. There's obviously the concept of working from home, which we've become more and more familiar with over the last uh, six or so months. Then there's in the field, which I think is very, very relevant to the government, given the broad base of missions uh, that the government supports. And then there's this third concept or fourth concept called third places. Um, and that is really, think about pop-ups and pop-down type facilities where you don't have a massive amount of uh, capital invested in that particular facility. You're sort of in it for a short period of time based on what the mission needs, and then you come out of it. The one concept that occurred to me as I read your testimony was the government did that for a little while. GSA used to manage, I want to say 10 or 12 years ago, used to manage remote work locations. And, and the reason at the time was that the average employee didn't have the bandwidth in her home to be able to telework from home. That's different now. So what 10 years, 12 years later, what does that third place look like or does it depend on what the needs of the organization are? Well, certainly we're in a different position from a broadband perspective. We're on the eve of a massive leap with 5G. So I think that's a little bit different from 10 years ago with GSA. At the end of the day, what I believe is the right position is to provide four different types of opportunities for employees to find an interaction point. Um, I do believe that humans do need to interact to get the mission done, um, to collaborate, to be entrepreneurial, to find um, breakthroughs in particular issues that they're working on. And so providing different locations for them to do that uh, other than just at home um, is, in my opinion, a game changer. What's the implication for the real estate footprint? In, if your recommendations were implemented, what would the government's footprint look like five years from now, Sean? 
I think it could become more distributed. I'm not suggesting it that will become smaller. Um, and I'm not even entirely sure that the amount of money that we're spending on uh, real estate today will significantly change because if you look at the testimony, we're actually recommending that people, uh, organizations invest in that real estate to create more collaborative spaces, to think beyond the orthodoxy of the cubicle. Um, but uh, over the medium to long term, uh, I do believe you will see a, a fairly significant shift on where those locations are and how, most importantly, they get to the heart of the mission to serve the American people. We just have a couple of minutes left, Sean. I apologize, we don't have more time to explore these ideas, but you also made some recommendations about performance management, which is a topic I haven't heard much about uh, in light of COVID. You recommend a new performance management approach and cultivating a culture of continuous 360 feedback. What did you mean by both of those, Sean? Yeah, at the end of the day, I think one of the biggest challenges we face with working from non-traditional locations is a trust factor. The trust level between a supervisor and the employee. And I believe that the way to increase that trust is to have a, uh, a great performance management system that um, allows for a significant number of interactions over the year, as opposed to the two interactions that most performance uh, systems have today, the mid-year and the year-end. And as a result of that, you get more real-time feedback uh, and 360 feedback from, both from the employee to the supervisor and the supervisor to the employee. And think about these radically different groups that individuals will be working with in the future. They become part of that 360 in the future as well. So this is what um, some of the most iconic organizations uh, in the world use, and it allows them to move forward in a much quicker fashion than many of the performance management systems we have in place today in government. Sean Morris, a lot more I'd like to cover, but we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Up next, a ban in place on Chinese telecommunications software and services. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what contractors need to do right now to implement the new rules. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Department will implement a new rule banning telecommunications equipment and services from Huawei Technologies and ZTE Corporation. The Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council says complying with the rule will cost contractors about $11 billion in the first year. Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, welcome back. Thanks for coming on. Uh, sure. what, what are contractors up against here and what's the timeline look like to comply? So Contractors are really up against it right now. The timeline is very quick. We're looking at an August 13th date when it takes effect. Now, I realize that's for new contracts or for renewals and things like that. So if a contractor doesn't have a contract coming up right then, um, they may have a little bit more time. But then you have also the um, government-wide acquisition vehicles, such as GSA schedules, um, which are going to implement this new rule uh, within their contracts um, right away. So. Um, Contractors have to comply right away, and it's a fairly big lift. Um, you know, this the rule in its first iteration um, 
really required, um, you can't provide these, this Chinese technology to the federal government. And contractors had a somewhat easy time complying with that rule because they generally were not doing that. But now it's more, much more expansive. It's the contractors cannot use this equipment. And use has a very broad meaning. It's anywhere in your factories or warehouses that you have a camera from one of these companies or anything like that. Um, you know, means that you can't certify to the federal government you're not using this equipment. And it doesn't matter whether the facility is, is connected with a government contracting facility or not. It, you know, for instance, a large tech company that has a small piece of government contract work, if they have a facility somewhere in a, outside the country that has this offending equipment in it, they have to remove it. What's the risk for companies that make a mistake, whether intentional or accidental, and the government finds out later there's something in the supply chain that wasn't supposed to be there? In the biggest risk, um, the most obvious risk, and one that they mentioned in the proposed or the interim rule, is the fact that um, your contract can be canceled um, if you certify something that's not true. Of, of course, all the parade of horribles that normally comes when a certification goes awry, such as a false claims act, such as reputational harm, can all kind of take effect too. The contractors are, are, you know, obviously facing a fairly laborious task in a short amount of time with a big downside. Um, the, the rule says that contractors must make a reasonable inquiry, um, which is something short of an audit, not quite an audit, um, but it's not really well defined about what a reasonable inquiry is. You know, how, how deep do you have to go? A lot of the equipment that these Chinese manufacturers manufacture go, under, go out under other labels. So how deep does a contractor have to go to see, all right, we have this thing that's labeled by a, a company that's not impacted, but perhaps I need to kind of look at the guts of this thing and see if, if Huawei or one of these other companies was involved in the manufacturing process. Um, that, I think that's the biggest risk to contractors right now is that's undefined. It's, it's you know, reasonable inquiry, you know, it's nice because it's not quite an audit, but what does that really entail when, you, when, you, when, the, when the rubber hits the road? And, and I think there's not really a knowing um, a pathway for contractors to take where they can do X, Y, and Z and they're assured that they're going to be in compliance or at least be assured that if they have something in their supply chain, they've gone deep enough to figure out if that offending technology is in their supply chain. So for companies who, who are, have to try to comply with this, Eric, is it as simple, and by simple I don't mean easy, there are two different terms, but is this as simple as ripping out the Huawei stuff or the ZTE stuff and replacing it with something else, or is the is at least the, even the strategy, the concept of compliance more complex than that? Yeah, it's, I, I think that's a large part of it. I think you really kind of hit that. It's as simple as that. But then there's the, of course, you know, educating your purchasing department about buying these products again, um, that they can't buy them um, because the contractors can't use them. And then, of course, working with your supply chain in total because you know there's the supply chain of the things that you're going to provide to the government and then there's the supply chain of the things that you're going to use yourself in your manufacturing processes or you know your service processes when you're providing services to the government you're going to buy computers maybe that your workers can work on um so there's two separate kind of supply chains to think about and i think that second supply chain is often overlooked when dealing with the federal government and that's one that's going to have a big spotlight on it now because the contractors are going to have to kind of look at those at that purchasing that they do for themselves internally and make sure it's compliant with this rule as well. So I think, I think, you, I think that's a lot of it of what you said, but then there's this other element that really has not been in the spotlight uh, from the government contracts perspective before. Any residual effects or unintended consequences that you anticipate as a result of this, Eric? Any potential pains for contractors that they're not thinking about right now? Yeah, I mean, 
one kind of one meta thing to think about is that you have um, you have a situation where the DOD has really been trying to get tech companies into the fold to bring innovation to DOD and to the government as a whole, and for for a large part, um, they've done things to make it easier. OTAs and other vehicles like that that are non-traditional for non-traditional government contractors. This is kind of the opposite, and I'm not saying that this rule is not necessary because obviously something has to be done. But this is something that's going to drive these kinds of companies away from a larger perspective. And I think um, when you see the reverberations down the line, it might have a substantial impact on DOD. And one last thing to think about, too, is we have this other, other initiative that's happening right now, CMMC, where, where contractors are going to have to be certified that they're cybersecurity compliant. And if you look at the CMMC requirements um, from levels two through and up, um, there is an obligation to kind of look at your supply chain. So I wouldn't be surprised that if, uh, if uh, assessors who are going in and looking for CMMC compliance are also going to look to make sure that contractors are complying with this rule and certifying properly that they don't have this equipment um, in their systems and using it. Eric, uh, 30 seconds left. What would you watch as this moves forward? I'm going to watch to see how stringent the government is about, about this. There's a waiver process in place. The waiver process is very clunky. It's very difficult to get a waiver, and the waiver is only good uh, for um, just that uh, agency at the most. Um, so you have to get a waiver for, for other contracts that the contractor is going for. I'm curious to see, you know, the government has said full steam ahead, DOD has said put on the brakes, industry has said put on the brakes. Is this gonna continue to be full steam ahead as we approach August 13th? Eric Crucius, thanks as always. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.